It's our sermon series that we're working through this summer. It's out of the book of 1 Timothy, a letter that Paul, the apostle, wrote to a young protege pastor that he had mentored and was continuing to mentor by long distance. That young man's name, of all things, was Timothy. He wrote Timothy two letters. We're studying through the first letter to Timothy called 1 Timothy. And we're going to be in chapter 2 this morning, verses 9 through 15. If you'd like to turn there, you can also follow along to most of the scripture references on the screen. Today, I I want to make a point over and over and over again, and I want to give the supporting scripture for that. So most of those supporting scriptures, I'm not actually going to read all of them. They won't be on the screen, but I will say them verbally, and so it's a good time to get a pen and pencil or crayon out, and your bulletin has room to take notes on the sermon, and write these down so you can study them later. I want to begin telling a story. Sometimes it's a local thing. In the mid-1980s, Lucy and I attended a church in Southern California. I was in the U.S. Air Force stationed there in Southern California, and for me, it was the first church I ever attended regularly and got grounded in the faith there, have wonderful memories, have lasting friendships from that time with the people that attended there along with us. And there was a young woman named Brenda. And Brenda started bringing her tambourine to church. And so Brenda, from her seat in the congregation, played that tambourine with gusto. But Brenda couldn't keep time with the worship team. And so the worship team would have one beat, and Brenda, with gusto from the congregation, would have a different beat on her tambourine. And and so for several Sundays, uh, Brenda played her tambourine from the congregation with gusto, out of tempo with the worship team. And so half the congregations follow Brenda and half follow the worship team and they're struggling like they never do otherwise to, to stay on beat. And so finally, you know, after three Sundays of this, the pastor had, had to talk to Brenda. And so privately he talked to her and, and told her that we love your enthusiasm, but it's messing stuff up. And I'm sure he used better words than that. But, so he encouraged Brenda to retire tambourine from public worship okay so um, sometimes pastors have to have conversations right sometimes pastors have to lead by by redirecting uh, individuals or, or an individual in a congregation so Brenda was asked not to play the tambourine anymore what did not happen is that all Christians everywhere were not permitted from using a tambourine on Sunday morning, right? There's no like biblical rule that thou shalt not play the tambourine on Sunday morning, right? You can't find that in Scripture. So, there was an individual circumstance that was addressed, but it wasn't a universal principle that was applied to all Christendom everywhere. Sometimes it's a local problem, and sometimes it is a general principle for all Christians everywhere, and it's important to know which one we're talking about and to act and respond accordingly. With that in mind, let's read today's Bible passage. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 
verses 9 through 15. Paul telling Timothy how to work with some problems in the church in Ephesus. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume any authority over a man. She must be quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, is it just me, or did maybe the blood pressure in the room go up a little bit as I read that passage? Is it just me? Okay, yeah. So, time for a blood pressure check. Woo! I tell you what, I, I said at the beginning of the sermon series that, that one of the best ways to do expository preaching where you reveal the meaning of a passage of Scripture is to preach verse by verse through an entire book of the Bible. And so that's what we're doing with First Timothy. If ever a passage would challenge a pastor's commitment to preaching through every verse of a book of the Bible, this one that I just read, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, just might be that passage. Woo! Right? Wow. So, but we're going to do it. And and uh, we might all live to tell about it. So Maybe. I might be at risk. I don't know. We'll see. Propriety and worship. Propriety and worship. In the second half of 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul focuses on the women of the congregation in Ephesus and addresses a couple concerns that we'll get to in a second. Now, Paul started addressing concerns with men of the congregation in chapter 1, verse 3. So as soon as his greeting was done, the first thing he addressed was things that the men needed corrected on in the congregation in Ephesus. So Paul spoke primarily to the men. And now he's speaking primarily to the women, okay? The first problem he sees involves the dress and appearance of the Christian women in Ephesus. Let's take another look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess the worship of God. Now, in the New International Version that I'm reading from, verse 9 begins, I also want the women. Now, the verb used is translated want here. Um, it's not just, you know, I think it'd be nice if the women did what he says following. It's, it's a, a, a stronger word. It's, Paul is saying, I expect this, what I'm about to tell you, to be followed. Okay. So apparently some women in the church in Ephesus there, where Timothy was pastoring, were adorned with elaborate hairstyles and jewelry that flaunted their wealth and position in society. And uh, that kind of attention-attracting display by women with the intricate braiding of their hair, putting jewels and, and gold in that, and, and 
drawing attention through their hairstyle and their adornment. Um, that was accepted in the society in Ephesus. And it was accepted in pagan worship. There was a large temple in Ephesus dedicated to the Greek goddess Artemis. And um, ladies would dress that way when they went to participate in, in the pagan worship there. And so this kind of attention-attracting display was popular in, in the Ephesian society and among the pagans worshiping at that local temple. Now, there's been other periods uh, in the history of the church when something similar occurred. John Wesley spoke of a similar problem in churches in England in the 1700s. Uh, there were women who would wear a series of towering wigs that set way up. So, you know, you want to be sitting behind her on, on Sunday morning, right? So you could look at the back of her wig through the whole service. And, and it wasn't just towering wigs, but they were ornately adorned. And one of the popular trends was recorded in a, a painting that still exists today of an aristocratic woman from that era whose wigs depicted a sea battle complete with ships fixed, fixed in the hair. So ornate tall, ornate with, you know, you can you can go to church and, and, you know, see the Battle of Trafalgar occur right in front of you during the service, right? So that kind of elitism, you know, to, to have all that jewelry or to have servants to put all that together for you, to get you to church in one piece, that, that takes some resources, right? And so what it was not only distracting during the worship service, but it was elitist. You know, it was prancing around and showing your wealth off to, to some people who came to worship alongside of you that weren't at the same station in life. So that kind of elitism has no place in the church. And a woman's profession of faith is to be proven by her good deeds, living as a follower of Jesus Christ. A life of good deeds a life of good deeds is what the well-dressed Christian woman should be wearing today and every day. And I'm preaching to a group of people that this is not a concern for me at all. But we're going verse by verse through the book of 1 Timothy, and so we're addressing it. The, the next issue is participation in the kingdom. And this, this second challenge involves participation of women in worship and in ministry. And we need to give this issue careful attention because it remains a point of contention in different parts of the body of Christ today. And at least half the church is directly impacted by the repercussions of where we come down on this. From And, and the rest of the church is impacted because the other half's impacted. Uh, it affects everything from preaching ministry to public testimony, from the classroom to the church board, at home, and on the mission field. And here's the issue. 
women speaking and teaching in church. Some regard Paul, because of these verses, as a chauvinist. And they base that on this passage of 1 Timothy and verses in a similar passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Believing that Paul relegates women to second-class status in the church. Nothing but second-class status and permanently second-class status in the church. Others agree that Paul ranks men above women, but not because he's a chauvinist, but they accept this as a will of God, convinced that the subordination of women is one link, link in a divine chain of command. So that, that's a couple options, and both of those are still out there in, in the Christian community today. There's a third way to understand Paul's words to Timothy. And this third way not only takes seriously the problems in the Ephesian congregation, but also gives proper weight to biblical passages, plural, that affirm women as partners in building the kingdom and commend their ministry in the church. And we're going to look at some of those this morning. So, when studying 1 Timothy chapter 2, stress is often placed on the idea that women should be submissive and silent. But how about we begin where Paul begins? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, a woman should learn. That's from the New International Version. In the New Revised Standard Version, it says, let a woman learn. Let a woman learn. A woman should learn. Now, that concept of that women should be allowed to learn was foreign to rabbinical thinking and Jewish custom when Paul wrote this. And Paul came out of Judaism to faith in Christ. As a rule, a rabbi would not even discuss religion with a woman. The early Christian church, on the other hand, recognized that Christ encouraged full participation of women in the kingdom. Here's some examples. Mary and Martha of Bethany were close friends of Jesus, and Mary, Scripture tells us, Luke chapter 10, sat at Jesus' feet for instruction. Wow. Other female disciples are known to us from Bible passages, including the woman at Jacob's well, whose witness led many people to faith. She publicly proclaimed who Jesus was, and people came to see him based upon her public proclamation, John chapter 4. Many people came to faith. Women accompanied Christ during his ministry. Some supported him financially. Uh, named among those are Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, and Susanna, Luke chapter 8. Matthew chapters 27 and 28 tell us women were the last at the cross, and the first at the tomb. That's why Jesus' first post-resurrection appearances were to women. Paul's own experience was consistent with what we've seen here was the experience of Christ. Priscilla and her husband Aquila were colleagues of Paul. And um, Priscilla and Aquila are described as fellow workers of Paul, Romans chapter 16. Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos before he became the pastor in the church in Corinth, Acts chapter 18. So Priscilla and Aquila 
are described by Paul as fellow workers. Others who Paul called fellow workers include Timothy and Titus and Mark and Luke, all of whom are, are authors of, of a portion of the New Testament. So Priscilla participated also in tutoring Apollos in the faith before he became the pastor of Corinth. Lydia, an independent businesswoman in Philippi, was Paul's first European convert and played host to him on his second missionary journey. It is believed that Phoebe carried Paul's Roman epistle to that church to Rome for him. He commended her to the church not only as a sister, but also as a servant of the church of Sincrea. The word translated servant here is usually translated in Paul's writing as minister. And this same word that's translated as servant or minister is also used by Paul to describe himself. Junia is mentioned in Romans 16 as an outstanding among the apostles. Hmm. At the very least, the generic meaning for apostle is one who is sent to publicly proclaim a message from the king. Okay? So, at the very least, Junia being described that way means that Paul and the church held her in very high regard. Of those given commendation by Paul in the Bible, more women than men. The principle of equality. Like a banner over all these notable examples of women who participate fully in the ministry, the public ministry, the prophetic or preaching ministry of the church, the teaching ministry of the church, over all those examples that we gave, flies Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, I say, given the extensive examples we've just reviewed, this equality sounds like the general principle, and something that's stated different than this equality is an exception, is a local circumstance. So, how then should we understand the restrictions of 1 Timothy? Let's go back there, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. A woman should learn in quietness of full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. So, this call for quietness and full submission is paralleled in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 33 through 35. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the Lord's people, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission. As the law says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Whoo! Maybe time for another blood pressure check? In the Corinthian passage, the instructions come within a larger call for orderly worship to a church that is confused by a stream of speaking out loud during the service in tongues that are never translated, so 
nobody understands what was said. It doesn't edify the body and build them up. And, and one after another, or one along with another, is speaking in tongues. And then people would stand up and prophesy. And prophesy more than anything else in the New Testament means to stand up and preach. Um, you know, we sometimes think of prophecy as foretelling, speaking about what's going to happen in the future. It does include that. But a lot of what is translated prophesied in the New Testament is talking about teaching, preaching, preaching in public. And so people people were, were speaking in tongues one after another or several at the same time. Nobody was translating them. Nobody was being built up by, by whatever was being said. And then people were standing up and offering sermonettes. And, and somebody is supposed to be, be in charge of that service. So that's what was going down in, in Corinth, to the, in the Corinthian church. Here in 1 Timothy, uh, addressing the church in Ephesus, the instruction for women that we've read today comes within a call for orderly worship in a congregation that's plagued by false teachers that were adding things to the gospel, that were adding things to the scripture, and that were saying, you've got to worship this and this other stuff. Or I have secret knowledge that will give you an inside track into knowing the mind and the will of God. So that's what's going on here in Ephesus. Both churches faced unique, special challenges. And in both churches, along with men, these challenges involved women. So, in Corinth, women who weren't properly instructed were interrupting the services by talking and asking questions out loud. In the church, Timothy pastor. In Ephesus, women were attracted to and influenced by false teaching, as were some of the men. And Paul addressed the men already, and now he's addressing the women. So, having instructed Timothy to stop men from promoting false doctrine, and one of the examples I've given is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul is determined to prevent some women from doing the same thing, from, from interrupting the service, from detracting from an orderly worship, uh, from promoting false teaching that's unbiblical and against the word of Christ. The apostle writes to two churches in turmoil, and to both he issues instructions intended to help restore order in those churches. One thing is certain, Paul does not impose an absolute rule of silence upon women in worship. Can you imagine then or now prohibiting women from singing? We'd have had to get up and walk out when Sarah was singing this morning. None of us did, did we? Women would be permitted, prohibited from testifying, from saying amen at the end of a prayer? Seems impossible, right? Especially given Paul's extensive acknowledgement of women's right to pray and prophesy in public worship. Another example is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, and all the examples that I gave earlier. Women prophets like Miriam, Deborah, and Huldah enjoyed divine approval in the Old Testament. The Old Testament. And the New Testament declares women will prophesy. Peter said after the day of Pentecost that Joel's prophecy had been fulfilled and he recites part of, of what we know as the book of Joel in the Old Testament. Acts chapter 2 verses 17 and 18 
Peter says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. That's a sign that the Savior has come and that the last days are here. That's a sign. Men and women will prophesy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul ranks prophecy second only to apostleship. He ranks prophecy higher than teaching. Clearly, women who have the gift of prophecy also have the right to exercise the gift in public worship and in private conversation. We've given biblical examples of both of those occurring this morning. So the restriction in 1 Timothy chapter 2 cannot be absolute because if it was, Paul would be contradicting himself. So given the extensive examples and given the expansive statement in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 to restate the universal principle is the equality of God giftedness and exercising that giftedness for both men and women. Now, we recognize that in his word God has given us timeless truths that can never change. We must also recognize that scattered among those timeless truths are time-specific customs and cultural practices that apply much better to the time and place in which they were written than they do today. Writing in a day when women were free in Christ but still poorly educated. So, you know, the, the, the general culture and the Jewish culture out of which the Christian church came, women weren't taught. Women stayed home with mom and learned how to take care of the house, and that's it. They weren't educated. They weren't discipled. They didn't go to a Sunday school class. They didn't go to a Bible study. None of that happened. And so Paul is writing to Timothy in the first generation of that occurring. And so their status had been changed. And when Paul says, let the women learn, that's radical in that day. But they were not educated yet. Okay? It's just a fact it takes time to become biblically literate. So, writing in a day when women were free in Christ but still poorly educated, Paul was doing damage control on a church in crisis. His words in today's passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2 are best understood in that light. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. Now, there's, a, there's another, like, simple, definite statement. And for many sincere Christians, this is the line in the sand, man. That's the line in the sand. We don't cross them, right? The verb translated to assume authority appears only here in the entire New Testament. This is its only use. And it, it's a harsher word than is translated um, to, to, to assume authority. It's more like to usurp authority to domineer, to improperly take authority from the one who properly has it. No, women in Ephesus who followed false teachers would have been challenging Timothy and the leadership of the church with those false teachings. Paul would not allow a woman to quote-unquote lord it over a man by seizing authority not granted to her by the church. Again, given that Paul explicitly 
recognizes and affirms the apostleship and prophetic gifting of women in the church in multiple passages throughout the New Testament. Here, he is responding to a problem in a specific church and not stating a universal principle. And then, the Adam and Eve argument just keeps getting better. The, those convinced that Paul's words of 1 Timothy chapter 2 should be understood as a universal principle argue that Paul makes his case using a universal illustration here. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, for Adam was formed first, and then Eve. So, as I've mentioned before, by Paul's time, Jewish rabbis had, not, had long declared that men should have authority over women in all areas because men were created first. But in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul acknowledges the interdependence of men and women. And he says there, Adam was created before Eve, but ever since then, men have come from women. And he continues in that passage and says, Both men and women are equally dependent on God by saying, But everything comes from God. If authority lies in the order of creation, wouldn't animals have authority over us? They were created first. Or wouldn't the Old Testament have authority over the New Testament? It was written first. The words were spoken first. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. And Adam was not the one deceived, and it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Time for another blood pressure check. Oh my goodness. Glad you're still here. Some contend that by saying this, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, Paul declares that all women are by nature more susceptible to deception and thus unable to teach. That opinion still exists in the church. But would we then conclude that Adam is superior to Eve because he sinned deliberately and not by deception? That's a fair question. Oh, Eve was deceived. All women are more subject to deception. They can't teach. Well, then Adam wasn't deceived. He knew what he was doing and did it. So he did it deliberately. So let's go with men because of that. Right? So Paul has given an example of a woman who is deceived in citing that Genesis passage and not offering a universal principle there. Paul is writing to Timothy, who is in Ephesus, where there is a temple devoted to the worship of Artemis, a Greek goddess and one of the twelve Olympians, daughter of Zeus in the Greek mythology. This entire section of 1 Timothy is almost certainly devoted to combating a heresy at the time in Ephesus that glorified Eve, along with the serpent that saw Eve as blessed rather than cursed after the fall and identified her with a number of pagan goddesses. The cult that promoted this that was also being promoted inside the church in Ephesus when Paul writes this letter to Timothy taught that Eve could impart knowledge to those in need of salvation and that Eve, the mother of all living, actually 
preceded Adam. So there was a challenge in the church that needed addressed in that time in Ephesus. And again, Paul is addressing a unique set of challenges to a specific congregation. And again, let me say it, given Paul's extensive statements of Christian equality that have cited the biblical references forth elsewhere today, we would be mistaken to see these verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2 as a universal principle. And then, there's salvation and childbearing. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15, quite possibly the most perplexing verse in the entire New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. What could Paul possibly mean by that? If you take this literally, in isolation from other scripture, it sounds like salvation by works to me. Like if women do enough of the right things, they can earn their way into heaven. And Paul's a great proponent of salvation by grace through faith consistently in all his writings in the New Testament. For him to suggest that salvation is secured by childbirth would contradict that. It would be salvation by works. If that were the case, what would be the fate of single women or married women without children? I think it's clear that this is not to just be understood in isolation, literally. Many, like me, believe that this is a reference to the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, God declared that women would experience pain in childbirth as a consequence of Eve's role in the fall. But just before that, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God had just promised a Savior. It's called the first gospel, the first time the good news that the Savior's coming is mentioned. And God doesn't use the word Savior there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But in that verse, God pledged that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So there's the first good news, that God's going to win it back. God's going to restore his kingdom. God's going to provide a way of restoration for his people. English translations, there isn't an English translation that I know of that includes what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 uses the definite article. That's the word the. And it's translated uh, saved through childbearing, but it could be literally translated because in the original language, the word the is there in a literal English translation would be women would be saved through the birth of a child. That's the literal translation. The birth of the child. And I'm not the one who came up with this idea, but I am a proponent of it. As in, through the Savior. So that's why that's called the first gospel all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. It says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. 
to restore salvation to God's people. And so it's, it is in accord with every rule of proper translation to go to 1 Timothy 2.15 and choose to translate it, the birth of the child. Women will be saved through the birth of the child. All these centuries or millennia of painful childbirth because of Eve's role in the fall by taking a bite out of the apple, being deceived by the serpent, are overcome and restored through the birth of the child, the one who comes to crush the head of the serpent. And we know now that that is Jesus Christ, the Savior. One child is born who will lead us back to fellowship with God. Now, no one knows for sure how to translate that phrase, but that's what I believe. Thankfully, whew, we can end with the Christian virtues about which there is no debate, where Paul says, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Paul ends in calling women in the church to a triad of Christian graces, faith, love, and holiness. And then one final call to decorum in worship with propriety. On that, we can all agree. And I am so thankful that women preach and teach in the church. My wife is a gifted preacher. She's a God-gifted preacher. And she, she is so different than me in her approach and in content of preaching. It's always a breath of fresh air for me. She much prefers to preach when I'm not here. Um, but every time I get to sit under her preaching too, I'm just blessed. And I would never consider that ungodly, and I would never consider that against the will of God or um, a proper exercise of God's giftedness in my life or any other woman. So, our, in the Church of the Nazarene, that this congregation is a part of and that I pastor in, we believe that women are called to participate in ministry like men are called to participate in ministry. And the examples that I gave from the New Testament text so, praise the Lord for women. Life is much better. May we all agree. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your holy word. Help us to consider this text and all the references that impact its proper understanding. And let us live with grace. Thank you that we are equally called to submit to you and equally called to be followers, disciples of Jesus Christ and equally called to proclaim the good news of Jesus' name. So, in equality, we've gone out by faith in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. God bless you.